verse 1 of chapter 9, the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The word of the Lord. So the reason I want to go through chapter 9 from verse 1 is... Um, Make sure you hear what God's saying, as we should always do. But this is some hard stuff until you kind of get an idea of that it's good stuff. And recognizing the sovereignty of God in our salvation. And, you know, election, predestination, called, um, vessels of wrath, vessels of, of mercy, and all these things. Uh, it's, it is a theology which is somewhat contentious. And we're going to talk about why, and then we're going to look at... but. You have to believe what God says. God, there was a bumper there. God said, God said it, that I believe it, that settles it. And it's like, no, God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, 
it's true, it's the word of God. So God is who God says he is, and we have to come to terms with it. Because if you believe something about God that is not true, and then sometimes you hear something that God says, well, this is true, and you look at that and you'll say, whoa, that's not good. No, 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 you're not good. There's a problem with your view of God. So I can promise you, errors which we may have about who God is, if we learn the truth of it, um, he is much better than any of our mistakes. You cannot create a God in your own liking and in your own image that is better than the actual God. But we do need, because of our sinful inclinations, we need to bow our knee to the Word of God. So the first thing I want to point, if you want to do this, is you made me this way. And this is why he's saying you've, you've had to have heard people say this. If God is a perfect creator and I'm his creation, then I am perfect as I am. It's interesting the people who will make that um, assertion typically aren't believers and they, but they do want to say, you believe in God, you believe in God created, you believe God made me, God doesn't make mistakes, God doesn't make trash, you've probably heard all these things, therefore, God made me who I am and how I am, and there can't be anything wrong with that. And you can hear the logic in that. If God is a perfect creator, I am his creation, therefore, I am perfect as I am. God says, No. You were created originally good. When God created man, he actually says, this is very good. Sinless Adam and Eve were created. And they were created with the free will ability not to sin. They were also created with the free will ability to sin. But we have to remember, Adam and Eve both had the ability not to sin. They had the ability not to sin. So Adam did not sin. The covenant being made with Adam, the day you eat from the tree, you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam did not sin out of weakness. He chose to sin. It says Eve was deceived, but it doesn't say that Adam was deceived. Adam, it, it may be a worse, his obligation was to protect his wife. His obligation was to protect the garden. And instead, his wife, Satan gives to Eve, she gives to him, and he does eat. Not out of weakness. God did not set him up in a way that was going to, where God caused Adam to sin. So we have to, to get that right. But the creation, as God created it originally, was good and perfect and right and sinless. But then Adam represented the entire human race. And we inherit a sinful nature from him. We're born sinners, and therefore we're deserving the wrath and curse of God. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the Lord from, because of their sin, and mankind continues to do this from God today. And they tried to cover themselves, their own nakedness, with fig leaves, but God uh, covered them with the skin of an animal because they could not cover their own sin. He covers their sin for us. And he promises a Savior to come who would destroy the works of the devil, crushing his head. And that Savior, we're told and find out, is Jesus Christ. And so not only does God create man good and perfect in the Garden of Eden, uh, and then man chooses to sin, and God could have completely just at that point said, that's it. Justice demands your death, but instead there's mercy and appointing to a Savior, appointing to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, God 
in his kindness and mercy and grace in the garden after mankind has chosen to sin against his creator, knowingly sinning against his creator, he still chose to provide a savior. And this is where, where we are. For a person to declare himself good before this holy God is itself sin. So for somebody to say, God is good, he created me, therefore I'm good, that's a sin. Because you're not believing what God has proclaimed about you. But they suppress the knowledge of God in all these different ways. Our fallen, sinful nature can manifest itself in many ways. Many, many sinful inclinations. As the children's catechism, you know my favorite question, how sinful are you by nature? I am corrupt in every part of my being. So we like to throw that one out at the table every now and then when somebody's bragging about how good they are. It's like, oh, that's great. You are corrupt in every part of your being. And so there's, you know, fingers can point right back at me. And it's like, but because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're filled by his spirit and we are now being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, his son. But God did not make us this way as far as being sinners. There needed to be one perfect man to represent all men because apparently all would have fallen as did Adam. And because this sin, I think sometimes we think about Adam, it's like, gosh, thanks, man. You know, Adam actually meaning man in Hebrew. It's like, so we might think, well, and I think uh, Nathan Clark George wrote a, a, a song. I don't know if he wrote it or I think he did. So what if I were in a garden? You know, would I have done this? You know, he talks about several situations where we look at ourselves. What if you were Adam? Would you have done better? Well, you like to think, well, knowing what we know now, no, not even then. Because it took the God-man, Jesus Christ, to be able to withstand the wiles of the devil and to be able to, to live a perfect life of obedience. But because God set up this law, because another thing you might think is like, well, it's not fair for Adam to have sinned and then we get credit for it. But one thing is we all would have sinned, so we all deserve it. But there's this law that's set up where this one man, Adam, represents all those who descend from him by ordinary generation. All his children from generations and generations are represented by him and are in him. So that this law comes up that when the second Adam comes in Jesus Christ, we have one man who lives a perfect life and all those who believe in him who are begotten by the Father, um, by the Holy Spirit, those who believe in him and are adopted into his family are removed from the headship of Adam and placed under the headship of Jesus Christ so that by one man's righteousness, all may be declared righteous. So that if it did indeed take, I'm just going to put everybody out there and you all get to stand on your own. You just do the law, do it perfectly all the days of your life and you're never going to die. You know, so as long as you don't sin, you'll be fine. Every one of us would have had to earn our life and we all would have fallen. And so we thank God that he set up this law, a federal headship of Adam so that he represented us. So that when the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes, he too might represent us and he covers the sins and gives us his righteousness. And so that's the good news of the gospel, that all the law is done perfectly in him, in us, because of that. So man is not perfect, even though God did create a perfect God, created us. So acknowledging God as creator does not excuse our behavior nor make our natures good. And then secondly, God chose who to give his mercy to. 
therefore, I can't do anything to be saved if I'm not saved. It's another argument people use. God's going to choose who he gives his mercy to. If I'm not a believer, nothing I can do about that. And again, God says, no, that's not true. Believe and you will be saved. We talked about this in the last sermon somewhat. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But a person may answer, but I can't believe because God hasn't given me mercy. But because God has ordained it. But as we talked about last week, this is the hidden will of God. There are things that God hides from us. He says, I do choose, but I'm not telling you who, and I'm not telling you why, and I'm not telling you lots of things about this. Just understand that I am the one who is in control of this. And so then we look at it and go, well, what if I'm not elect? What if I'm not that? What if I'm not that? And so the question is, what do you want to be? Because there's a revealed will of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the question is, do you want to be saved? Do you desire to be saved? Do you recognize your sinfulness? Do you want to be saved? And this is what verse 18 is talking about. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And here's how I believe the hardening works. He gives the example earlier in chapter 9 of Pharaoh. And we know we read the, in Exodus about Pharaoh. It says, you know, God's commanding Pharaoh to do things, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then later and more frequently, it is also read that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so you might say, oh, which is it? You know, and it, it's both. And it's always both in this sense. As in the example of Pharaoh, if God had left Pharaoh alone, he would still have been a lost and wicked sinner. God had not commanded or ever, you know, the, the Israelites never made their way into Egypt. This Pharaoh had never come to power there. He'd still be a, a, a wicked, evil sinner. But when God commanded Pharaoh, who was considered to be God himself, when God commanded Pharaoh to do anything, then Pharaoh hardened his heart against it. The example I use, you, 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 know, you tell your kids to get in the tub, and they don't want to get in the tub. So they harden their hearts against you. They don't want to do it. And then when you tell them to get out, they don't want to get out. And it's like, oh, now they harden their hearts against you again. You know, just if you want to harden somebody's heart against you, command them to do something they don't want to do. If you want to soften your children's hearts, then just do everything they want. You know, and they'll become as evil as they possibly could be. Allow a child to go the way they want to go, and they will not depart from it when they're older. So you be careful about such things. But God kept on with Pharaoh, continually commanding Pharaoh and sending plagues. And then Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Or is it God who's doing the hardening because he's the one doing the commanding? And Scripture tells us that God indeed is hardening Pharaoh's heart because this is what happens when God commands a sinner to do something. The heart becomes harder. We have to watch this in our own lives as we struggle with sin still. We're still sinners and yet saints. We're dying more to sin, living more to righteousness, but we still have this sinful nature within us as well. When you find yourself uh, in struggles with God, you find yourselves with um, uh, struggles of faith even because we suppress the knowledge of God in our sin. So if you're struggling with your faith, you have to kind of examine yourself. Am I suppressing the knowledge of God because he's commanding something that I don't want to do? And I'm not saying like he's saying go to some country. I'm just saying he might be saying, you know, speak kindly to this person. And you don't want to do it. 
Or he might say, you know, help this. I don't know what God might be telling you to do. There's tons of stuff. I mean, I'm sure if you were to make a list right now of things you believe God has told you to do and you don't want to do it, you could probably come up with a list. And as you struggle with that, that begins to work to harden our hearts, which we've been given the, the heart of the Spirit. So we have to make sure that we're continuing to preach the gospel to ourselves, that God loves us um, because of Christ, and that we do indeed want to bend the knee to him. We want to follow him because of his spirit that's been placed within us. But as God kept on commanding Pharaoh, then God, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and against God's people. And then what do we see today? The heavens declare the glory of God. So sinners are out there, and this is Romans. He's saying, you know, heavens declare the glory of God. And in the Psalms, night after night, they pour forth speech. They're declaring to hard-hearted sinners, there is a God, and he has great power, and he has great majesty, and he is a creator God. And so they know these things about God, and they suppress it in their sin, and just the heavens itself, the creation itself, especially as scientists are beginning to, to explore the outreaches of space. And as they go further and further, they're all saying, there's, still, there's, not enough, there's, not, there's not enough billions of billions of billions of years to have done this. And as scientists go in smaller and smaller and smaller, looking into the, the DNA and all these things, the mechanics are involved. The more they go deeper and deeper into a cell, they're just like, there's not enough billions of billions of billions of years for this to have happened. There's not a mechanism in place for this to have happened. And so you watch the debates and those who call themselves Christians or deists and those who are atheistic as they struggle to, to look at what God is screaming from the heavens and from his creation that I am here, I am here. Sorry, I always think of Horton Hears a Who. You know, a little bit elephants sitting there saying, don't you anybody hear it? You know, and the little Who's are running around in Whoville. I guess they're in Whoville and that little dust pack. And they're, they're yelling and then the monkeys are up there saying, bowl that dust pack. I don't know if I'm combining a few different Horton stories. But it's like he's trying his hardest. These are finally the one little kid or somebody who's not making the noise and he gets his little thing and he blows it. And then finally they hear, we're here, we're here, we're here. And everybody goes, oh. he's right. That's not an image of the gospel at all. The gospel is he's yelling, pouring forth speech. Our problem is we don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. And when that begins to break through to a sinner who is not experiencing the mercy of God, it is a hardening process. And then not only creation yelling out to um, a fallen creation who's stopping their ears and stopping their eyes, but then when the gospel of Jesus Christ goes forth, I mean, when the gospel of Jesus Christ, you may have non-believers who listen to you talk about Jesus and they, they nod their head and smile like you're an insurance agent and they like you, but they're not buying no insurance, but they're going to politely show you to the door. Or you may have people who just rebelliously fight against you. You may have people in their places, in some places of the world, some parts of the country where there's great persecution. They might even seek your life for preaching the gospel, for trying to tell somebody about Jesus Christ. And why? I mean, look at all these other countries where they just try to stomp Christianity out. And, when, and I've thought about that. I was like, so doesn't Christianity make you a better, wouldn't they make your people better? Why would you not want your people to, to become Christian? And for a lot of the more, the more demonic the government and the more totalitarian the government, then the more the idea is, I am God. You will have no guys before me. And it hardens those people who are in power. And that's a lot of our problem is we all seek to be in power of our own little worlds. And when God comes in and says, you have no power over your world. I am the one in control. Then that 
pardons unless he shows forth his mercy. So the gospel of Christ goes forth and tells of a great salvation from sin and from God's wrath, and there can be reconciliation between the sinner and the holy God and this gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sin is the very power of God for salvation. But they who are not chosen by God, who do not have God's mercy granted to them, who don't have this inner calling, freely choose to maybe mock the gospel. Freely choose to mock the gospel. They freely choose to hate this Jesus and his church. They freely refuse to, from the heart, acknowledge God and to acknowledge themselves to be worthy of his wrath, deserving of eternal punishment. I mean, it's a thing. If God is not granting mercy to a person, they see that as foolishness, and they may even become very angry about it. So then people answer back to God if pressed hard enough, and you see the answer in Romans 9, beginning in verse 19. You'll say to me then, why is he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what you have to see in this is God does not make people sinful. This is not what he's saying. He says um, from the same lump, one vessel, he makes one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. It's not saying that he makes, he's taking lumps of sinful mankind and desiring to express his mercy to some and harden others. God does not make people sinful, but he commands all people everywhere to repent and to believe in the Christ. And God would have been perfectly just never to have sent his son. I mean, we can have a little mistake going on in our minds. It's like, well, God had to send Jesus because God is right and just. He had to send Jesus. No, it wasn't his justice. The only reason it was his justice that sent Jesus Christ was because if he had decided to save anyone, he has to maintain his justice. If he's going to save sinners, he has to do it through his justice. And it's an impossibility except through Christ, where the one man's of infinite worth, whose righteousness is infinitely righteous, that he would, God, become man, sacrifice for us, then that's the only way that we could be saved. However, God was under no obligation to do that. So don't think that God had to send Jesus, or else he would not have been just, or God would have been perfectly just to save no one. He didn't have to save a single person. But he never treats anybody with injustice. And God would have been perfectly just to save everyone if he chose to. Through In Christ, God could have said, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to save every single person that ever lived or will live. He could have done it and he would have been perfectly just in Christ to have done so. But he has not chosen to save every single person. 
And that is what angers a lot of people. If God could save everyone, but he doesn't, that would be wrong. Just as if a fire department could have saved everybody from a burning building, but chose to save some and chose not to save others, that would be terribly wrong. And we would all, everybody would say, you know, how wrong this is. Outrageous. But the problem with that analogy is those are innocent victims of a disaster. But the disaster of the wrath of God is, is right. God's only reason to sacrifice his son for someone would be for his own glory. Would be out of sheer mercy and grace. God would, it is not the same as a burning building and someone who could save everybody chooses not to save anybody or chooses not to save some. It's not the same thing. But I think that's the way we look at it. And there's all kinds of churches that, theologies that have developed to save God from that scenario. So, I mean, again, I think we just say, let God be God and let him speak for himself. Don't try to rescue God from your problems with him. And that's what a lot of theologies have done. Pelagianism, semi-Pelagian, Arminianism, you know, all these things that are talking about God gives us free will and he steps back because he can't interfere with this stuff because if he did, that'd be wrong. And that's just a theology to save God from being the fireman that won't go in and save everybody. Because what would happen is if God did that, then every single person would perish. Gosh, I shrugged my words. Every single person would perish. If it's all about free will and God desiring us above all things, which I've heard people preach from pulpits, the most precious thing to God for mankind is their free will. And therefore, God doesn't intervene at all in the, in the free will choices of man. We are condemned, every single last person. So we thank God for in his word, he tells us he does not do that. That he indeed gives his mercy to some. And again, I know we have this problem with some, but we have to rest in what God's doing. Because what God says through Paul by the Holy Spirit in verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonor? And he just says it. There's the word of God. And in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath? And I think him enduring with much patience the vessels of wrath hardens them because the more patient God is in his calling us and his desiring us to come to faith in some way and night after night pouring forth speech as the church is going out proclaiming the gospel and these vessels of wrath are just getting harder and harder and harder so God is perfectly just and desires to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power. That is perfectly acceptable for God to do. And in verse 23, but he's also in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. So what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. So he does this in order to make known the riches of his glory. So one of the things that we recognize, if God were to save everyone, he'd be perfectly 
um, just in doing it through Christ, and he, it's his grace and it's his mercy. But one of the things we would not experience is the seeing of the damnation of the sinner, the seeing of hell, the seeing that uh, while it says God takes no pleasure in the condemnation of the wicked, he's not up there, as we've said before, he's not up there like the emperor in Star Wars, just enjoying torturing Luke. You know, he's not up there just enjoying these things, but it is to the, to the glory of his wrath and, and his power. And we're able to see the opposite. like, look what you've done. Look what we deserve. That's justice. That wrath is what we deserve. But in Christ, we see how rich the glory of his grace truly is. Because we see the opposite of what it could be. And so we see God pouring out his mercy. Even in the second commandment. Don't make for yourself any idols. No idols. For God is a jealous God. So you're to have no other gods before me. God is a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands. And I've heard it translated where it's actually talking about thousands of generations of those who love me and are called according to my purpose, those who love me and keep my commandments. And so you see as God's desire to show mercy, God's desire to show love, God's desire to, to pour forth his love, for God is holy, but he's, his, he's also love, but it is a holy love. And so what about those that we love? And we, we see that they don't seem to have faith, they don't seem to be going in the right direction with their belief, and we should love everyone in this way, for everyone is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei, all people, no matter how sinful, still are image bearers and worth our dignity. They have dignity and they have respect in that. But there's also righteousness and there's justice, but we never demean the person. And we should have this love for everyone, desire to, to see people rescued from the coming wrath, snatching them from the fire. And so we pray And we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We bring our children up in the church and the faith. We teach them to trust God's promises. And we see God working throughout the Old Testament and households and in New Testament too. The the blessings of the covenant promises always including households as Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And his entire household is brought into the ark. Then those who are raised in the church and those who are raised hearing the preaching of the word and the covenant promises of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they get to taste the heavenly gifts. And we trust God who has the power to save and has also ordained the means of salvation. So he hasn't just said these are the ones who are and these are the ones who aren't, but he's also ordained how people are to be saved. And we don't know the who's, we just know the how's. And that there is a means of salvation that for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we're to preach the word of God and those who are within our households, uh, believing households, those who are within our, our hearing, our reach in the world and all these different areas that we have is they hear us speaking the words of God. We're praying for them. These are means of grace, a family teaching their children the word of God and praying and worshiping together. And if, if God were not in control of this, then no one would be saved. But we hold out great hope for those whom God has providentially placed in our care. I mean, somebody gets to hear the gospel. There's people in parts of the world they don't world that never even heard. And so we hold out great hope for those who do hear. Especially those who are in our households. 
that have received covenant promises that see these things happening and being brought up as believers so that one day they too might um, be able to profess their own faith and raise their own families in the same way. And God calls us some to mission work, to make use of these means of grace in other parts of the world. Some may be called to actually preach the gospel. It could be foreign lands. It can be right here. It can be wherever the Lord God would choose to send anyone with this gospel. But we're all called to live our lives in a Christ-like way before a world that is always doing, and we're always doing all things to the glory of God and in his name so that we are in a world where we aren't just doing good deeds, but we are preaching the gospel with our lives and with our tongues for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But if your works contradict your words, if you preach a gospel but you live a life of judgmentalism and reckless abandon of sin and you act like there is no God and you're telling everybody about God. Everybody always believes your nonverbal communication over your verbal communication. I've said this before. If you're sitting at the table and I give you some food and you eat it and you make a terrible face and you tell me you love it, I will believe your face every time over what you say. And that's the way it works because people know what you really believe is coming out. Say what you might. But with the gospel, you can't just walk around smiling and happy all the time. People might just think there's something wrong with you. What you got to do is you have to give a reason for the hope that's within you. You have to be able to say, everything I'm doing, I'm doing to the glory of God. I, don't, I know a person one time that they were, they were quitting their job. And I was like, you know, why are you quitting your job? <laughs> because you know, I, feel, I think God's calling me to something else. But you can't tell your boss that because boss is a, you know, a high power guy and he doesn't believe that kind of stuff. And so what are you going to do? You should go in and you should say, yeah, I just feel like it's time for me to move on to greater opportunities. And I think I'm being, you know, led to see how do you talk? We got such Christian ways of talking. And so what you decide to do is go into the boss and say, I'm a believer. God is I believe God is calling me to do something else. God tells me to. Uh, in all my ways acknowledge him and he will make my path straight so I just have to acknowledge him in this and and that's what I'm doing and so there's a testimony and so you can't just live your life in a particular way without the gospel but if you preach the gospel you seek to line your life up with it and a part of that is acknowledging the fact that See, told you, we're all sinners, including me. I'm still, I still mess up. I still blow it. I still say wrong things, do wrong things, be wrong things, whatever it is. I have sinful inclinations just like everybody else. But what I am is forgiven. And what I am is sorry for that. And what I do hope that God does through me is help me to be more gracious and more merciful to other people. Because without Christ, we're all without hope. And then that's how you see the gospel beginning to work on you. Because a person typically... I mean, you have very humble people that aren't Christians. But you have to say, why are you so humble? And hopefully the reason the Christian is humble because the Holy Spirit's been at work in my life. And that's what we need to be able to, not as a program of evangelism, but just as a way of living our life, we just, we speak Christ. I know people who do it much better than me. I hear people do that, and I'm just like, oh, I wish I was there about that. You know, but then I get to say, hey, I'm a pastor. I get away with it. I do it once a week. So, you know, you can't do that. Everything you do, it just has to be to the glory of God. And you seek ways of mentioning his name. And God will put you in um, difficult, not even difficult, but just uh, 
that was the word I'm looking for. It just kind of puts you in uncomfortable situations where you know, I was getting my hair cut by a substitute barber one time. I cheated on my barber, and I went to another barber for some reason. I can't remember why. And I'm sitting in there, and this guy's a hunter, and he's got these deer heads and boar heads. I don't know, all these heads up there. And I'm like, gosh, I didn't see a human head, thankfully. And he's like, you know, but he's just this guy, this gruff man cutting my hair. And all I can think the whole time is, he's not. I need to say something about Jesus Christ to this man. And I'm like, I don't want to do it, don't want to do it, you know, so I sat there, and finally I said something, I don't even remember what I said, and he said something, and I got a haircut, you know, so that was the end of that. But you will be in uncomfortable situations in which the Lord, the Holy Spirit may prompt you to say, hey, mention Christ, and that's what we're called to be faithful to. I, I, I am not responsible for having the right, perfect argumentation for that barber to be saved so that he might go to hell forever because of my imperfect presentation of the gospel to him. However, we don't know how God works in his sovereign calling of some and not others where he works it out that the hardening of some is because we didn't do something we were supposed to do. So I'm not laying the law on you and saying, you want to be pleasing to God, you want to be saved, you got to go do this. I'm just saying, you don't know anything except we're told to speak God's word to the people. We're told to live godly lives. We're told to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he's commanded. And this happens primarily in the church. Secondarily, maybe even close to primarily, it's in the home, but you better have a home that's in church, and then it happens in the world. As we are out there being salt and light, speaking truth to people so that God, and we got to remember, God loves saving people. The angels in heaven rejoice when they see somebody coming. We should be so exuberant about finding people whom God is calling to himself that he would even use us to call him to himself. I think we're like the salespeople. I used to, if you're a little and you had to go sell things for baseball or something like that, and then people tell you, no, no, no. Finally, you say, I don't want to do this anymore. We're not salespeople. We are people who are proclaiming something about God. And there are people out there who will hear. And they might not even, they might hear from somebody who heard from you. But we're called to be proclaiming. Because God is great. And God is good. And we have all been called to trust him and to follow him. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He has promised to build his church. So let us glorify him for our salvation and let us do all he calls us to do to glorify him and to save others. Let us worship our great Savior. To him alone be the glory, not to us, not to us, but to thy name be the glory. So let us pray. Father God, our most gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to our hearts and that you have shown us your glory in the face of Christ Jesus. That we, if we look to ourselves and our obedience to the law, then we can only see how far short we fall. But when we cling to your promises that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled the law on our behalf, that in Christ we are the righteousness of God in him, and that what we believe is what you said, what you told us, and we're clinging to these promises that for those who call upon your name, O Lord, there is now no condemnation. So help us 
not to delve into secret things about who is called and who is not. Am I called? Am I not? One, if I'm worried about it, it's a good indication that you're at work. And secondly, Lord, am I clinging to your promises? To your promises that you will hold me, that you will hold us, and you'll always be with us even to the end of the age. As we come to your table, we see this great promise given to us again that you actually indwell us. You feed us when we hear the gospel. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.